Well, good morning, Rivertown Community Church. Hey, so good to have all of you with us today at all of our campuses. And whether this is your first time here with us today or your hundredth time, it is a great day for you to be with us because I just absolutely believe that uh, we really have some exciting days ahead of us as a church. And we believe that these next few weeks are really going to help continue to set what we think is the right attitude and the course of this church for the future. In fact, I've been uh, talking with our staff for this series on four, this four series that we're going to be doing for the next four weeks. And we have been praying about it for the last three months. And uh, I just think it's one of the most important conversations that we have had in a long time. And so today, um, we're going to kick that off, but also it just kicks off one of my favorite seasons around here every year, and that is when our churches choose to show in our communities in a powerful and a public way that we are absolutely for the people in our community. And so this year, we're going to take that to a whole nother level. I'll explain that at, today's, at the end of today's talk. But first of all, I want to talk about why four is so important to us as a church, because four is not just a slogan, it's not just a logo, it is our mission as a church. Now, some of you know that I began pastoring this church about 27 years ago. Yeah, some of you are not even that old. But what probably you don't know is that the first seven years uh, we spent as a church studying the New Testament, trying to figure out how Jesus would answer this question What is a church? Now, that, that may seem like a silly question for the church to be asking, but here's what I knew. I grew up in church, and what I experienced in church, it was so different than what I would read in Scripture about the church. In other words, whenever I would read about the first century church, and then I would look at the 20th century church. Yes, I started pastoring at the end of the 20th century, so I'm a little bit older, um, and, and it looked so very different. So in my mind, there had to be this disconnect and this misunderstanding between what Jesus intended for the church to be and what we were as a church. Like something just didn't add up. And what we discovered over those first seven years of seeking to know what the church is and what the church is to be about has really shaped our, our approach for the church for the last, or for our church for the last 20 something years. So here is the definition of church in three parts. Three parts that I'm going to share with you this morning. The first part of the definition is the church is not a meeting place, the church is a movement. See, so many people today believe that the church is this building, and they talk about the sanctuary and the building, and then they make this sacred place. And though the church may meet in a building, the church is so much more. See, a church is not defined by a location. The church is defined by the people. See, that, that's why when there was just a natural disaster and there was this pandemic, our church didn't end. Our church didn't stop. See, our, our church kept right on meeting online and in homes with small groups, and our church just kept right on serving at schools and nonprofits in our community. Our church kept on giving to meet people's needs and inspiring them to follow Jesus Christ. Because, see, while meeting together is so important and it is so valuable, where we meet doesn't define our church. Because as we're going to see today, the church is not a building the church is you, and the church is me. So the only way that our church will change for the worse is if you and I change for the worst, and, and we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to keep changing for the better because we are part of a movement. 
Now, if the church is a movement, who is that movement for? Well, as we studied what Jesus taught, we became convinced of this second idea that is part of our definition of what a church is, and that is this. So the church is a movement for all people. This means it doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. It doesn't matter whether you're single or married. It doesn't matter whether you consider yourself to be rich or not rich. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your past was like, what mistakes you made. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed in the past. You are welcome here to be part of the church. It doesn't matter how big you are, how small you are, how strong or weak. It doesn't matter what your internal struggles or external struggles are. You are welcome to be part of our church. See, it is our hope that the church today would become known for who it is for, not who or what it is against. And finally, we, can, we came to believe part three, that the church is a movement for all people who are being changed by the resurrection of Jesus and driven by the command of Jesus. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but the church would have never existed apart from the resurrection of Jesus. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for the church. If you stop and think about it, on that day that Jesus died on the cross, for the next three days, there were no Jesus followers. They were all disillusioned. They were all discouraged. They were all in despair. But... At the end of those three days, when Jesus walked out of that tomb on his own power and people saw him with their eyes and they touched him with their own hands, suddenly they believed that Jesus truly was the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And this movement that we call the church, it literally began as these people begin to take everything that Jesus said seriously. Because see, that's what you do when a man predicts his death and his resurrection and he pulls that off. You'll pay attention to everything he said. And at the core of what he said, and at the core of what they took seriously, was this command that Jesus gave them just before his crucifixion when he was with his 12 disciples. And this command, it wasn't the restatement of the Ten Commandments. It was not a long list of commands. It was just one command, and you got to understand something. It was one command that took on an entirely new meaning after the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I'm going to remind you of it. On the night after Jesus' arrest, or on the night of Jesus' arrest, I should say, he took his 12 disciples and he said this to them. These were his words. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And I don't want you to miss the intensity of what is happening here. Jesus is making this statement. He's saying, listen, I'm giving you a new command. Literally, I'm giving you a command that will override and replace all the other commands because if you keep this one command, you will fulfill all the other commands. And I'm sure as Jesus is saying this, I mean, this is just like stretching them to the max because only God gives commands. And Jesus is basically saying, that's right, I'm God. And then they watch Jesus die on the cross and they realize, wow, this is love at another level as I have loved you. This isn't the normal kind of people love. This is love without limits. This is love that changes everything. 
And then Jesus told them this next. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So for the early church, nothing mattered to them more than how they loved. Their version or their translation of Scripture didn't matter more than how they loved because they didn't even have the Scripture at that time. Think about it. See, they realized in that moment in time the most authentic way to love God is to love the people like Jesus loved people. So for them, loving as Jesus loved, that was the distinguishing mark, and that was the driving message of this new community called the church. So as we discovered that the church was this movement, what we did is we began to pray and say, God, help us create this kind of movement, the kind of movement that Jesus died and Jesus rose again to launch. And we certainly have not gotten it right for the last 20 years all the time because we're human. See, there are times that we, we notice and we see ourselves like we were getting selfish or we're getting greedy or we're getting impatient or we're being unkind. But listen, the, the win for us as followers of Jesus Christ, it is absolutely and clearly defined for us by Jesus that we are a movement of people who have been changed by the resurrection of Jesus and we are driven by the message of Jesus. And along the way, we've worked on learning to love like that. And I want you to understand something. We've also learned that to love like that, it takes a lot of practice. To love as Jesus loved, that does not come naturally to any of us. So a few years ago, we decided collectively that we were going to work together at getting better at loving like Jesus loved together as a church, as a church body about this time every year. And so part of what inspired us was something that the Apostle Paul wrote to his friend Timothy. It was a church that the Apostle Paul had planted and Timothy was pastoring. It was a church at Ephesus. So I want to share with you again what the Apostle Paul said, and then I want to show you how the early church practiced this and then share how that we're going to practice this this year. Now, here's the instruction that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy. We find this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. Now, I want you to pause there for a moment because I don't want you to miss something that's really important. He says, Timothy, there's something you need to tell those people who are rich in this present world. And when you read this and you see this part of the verse come up on the screen, you think, well, he's not talking to me. But let me just remind you that you're very rich. In fact, if you make $35,000 a year, you are in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. And some of you might be sitting there going, well, I don't make $35,000 a year. Well, if you make $20,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. Now, wouldn't you, in your mind, if you were just having a conversation before I told you this information, if I told you, hey, do you think the top 10% of the people, wealthiest people in this world are rich? You go, oh, yeah, because there's 90% of the world poorer than them. But every time I mention this to somebody, nobody applauds, nobody jumps up and down, nobody like, wow, this is so amazing. Like, I'm in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. You're not excited at all. You know why? Because you don't feel rich. And you know why you don't feel rich? Because you don't compare yourself to the other 90% of the people. You just compare yourself to the people who are richer than you. 
See, in your mind, rich is the other guy, it's the other gal. Rich is the people who have more than you do. But you're rich. Imagine sitting down with someone like Pastor Mino, who we support as a church in Haiti. We help them build their, their church, and, and we've helped fund that church building, and then we fund them every month. Imagine sitting down them with someone in Haiti like Pastor Mino and explaining your financial problems to them and telling him how much you make a year. I, I can promise you they would beg for your financial problems. Now, you may be sitting there thinking like, why are you making such a big deal about this? Are you trying to make me feel guilty about what I have? Not at all. I don't want you to feel guilty at all because I believe God allowed you, God allowed me to have everything that you have. We're going to see that in just a moment. So you should not feel guilty, but you should feel responsible. You should feel responsible. But here's the thing, you won't feel responsible if you don't recognize that you're rich. And compared to the rest of the people in this world, you are rich. Let, let me just tell you how rich you are, okay? You're so rich that you pay people to cook your food for you. We call this eating out. Some of you have gotten so rich during this pandemic, not only do you pay people to cook your food for you, but you now pay them to bring it to your house. See, we have even gotten richer in our lifestyle during the pandemic because like now you're paying people cook your food, bring it to your house. Some of you are so rich that you own your house, but you don't only own your house. You're so rich that you build a garage for your car. You now park your car in a house. Some of you, you're so rich that you have pillows that you have to throw off your bed at night so you can get in your bed. Or you have to throw off your couch so you can sit in your couch or your chair while other people in other countries don't even have a pillow to lay their head on. So some of you, you're so rich that you store extra food. You, have, you went out and bought this thing called a refrigerator because you have so much food, you have to restore it. But you don't just have a refrigerator. Some of you have a, a freezer. Some of you don't just have one freezer. You have two freezers. You don't even think about, give us this day our daily bread, please, Jesus. See, here, here's the reality. We are all rich, even though none of us feel like it. So what he's saying is, you need to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul is saying. Notice what he says. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Now, you already know that this command is true, that the tendency to become arrogant with wealth is part of the tendency. See, the more you have, the more arrogant that you are tempted to become. Because here's what happens. The more you have, the more you think that makes you smarter. You, you think it makes you safer. You think it makes you more secure. You think it makes you more significant. In other words, the more you have, the more say that you believe that you should have in this world. Well, people should listen to me because I have more. See, the more you have, the more you believe that money can solve your problems and make you someone significant. Now, here's what I know about each one of us. None of us believe that this will ever happen to us, that we will become arrogant or put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. So let me just kind of explain 
how we live this out in our life, how we fall into this trap unknowingly. See, here's what happens. When the average person gets more, they start living in what is known as the cycle of accumulation. See, whenever a person has extra, they start by collecting more. So I had just enough food, but I want more food. And now I'm able to buy more food. So now I have a refrigerator and I have a freezer. Or I had just enough clothes, but you know what? I have more, so now I'm going to get more clothes. So I have to add more space to store my clothes. Some of you, you have clothes in a storage building that's not even on your property that you pay rent for in another, another piece of property. So we, it's not just about having enough clothes, we have more clothes. Well, here's the thing. So now I've got more food, I've got more clothes, and I feel rich, and I, I feel satisfied. But then there comes this point where more is not so satisfying anymore. So I don't just want more, no, now I want better. See, I have more food, but now I have money to get better food. Or I have more clothes, but now I, have, I want better clothes. And then what happens is we start accumulating better stuff in every area of life. And it's satisfying because all of a sudden I now have more and it is better. It's better than anything I've ever had before. But again, there comes a point where better is not enough anymore. And so you know what happens in this cycle when you're in this cycle? We start chasing different. This is why people will spend two, three, four, hundred, five hundred, a thousand dollars on a shirt. It's why people spend two, three, four, five, six hundred, maybe fifteen hundred dollars on a pair of shoes. It's why people wear jewelry, one ring or one watch that'll cost fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. It's it's why people collect unusual or rare things because see, it's not just enough to have more. Lots of people have more. It's not even just enough to have better. Lots of people have better. So I want to separate myself from just average Joe who has more and better by having different. And I don't want to just have different at another level when it comes to my clothes and how I live and what I drive. I mean, it's also my vacations. I want, I'm going to have these amazing vacations that just boggle other people's minds. And, and I'm going to get a car that's just going to boggle people's minds because more and better, they are not satisfying anymore. I'm going to separate myself from everybody else, and I'm going to have different. You know what happens? After a while, different's not enough. So you know what you do? You start the cycle over, and at that level, you start going for more, and then it's better, and then different again. This is human nature, and this is what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy. See, this is what you will do if given enough time or enough extra, and you're not real conscious about this. But I'm going to tell you, this cycle of more, better, different, what it does is it creates arrogance. But the other thing it does it creates hope in wealth. So the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, listen, remind those rich people that riches are uncertain. They can lose their riches overnight. 
They can lose all of their wealth at any point. And riches don't make you significant. And it doesn't make you smarter. He says, no, you need to tell them there is a much better way. In fact, he goes on to tell us what the better way is. Notice the last part of verse 17. He says, listen, command them not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but instead to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And and here's the thing. He says this last line that God provides us for our enjoyment so that you don't need to feel guilty for what you have because you're, you're not the source of what you have. God provides it for you. He, he wants you to enjoy it, but not through the cycle of accumulation. That, that's when we become wasteful. That's when we become um, poor stewards of what God has, has blessed us with and we become arrogant and we start putting our hope in our wealth, which is uncertain. So the apostle Paul is basically saying, Timothy, you you need to tell every person out there who's rich in this present world, hey, listen, every blessing is a blessing from God, but every blessing that you have, it comes with responsibility. So he says, here's what you're responsible to do when you have a little more than what you need. Verse 18, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In other words, here's what he is saying. Because I have more, I should do more and I should give more. Because here's what he's saying. Because I have a little more than other people, bottom line, he says, I don't have to work seven days a week from sunup to sundown anymore. I've been blessed with a little extra time. So I should do good with some of that extra time. I shouldn't use it all for me. See, I've been blessed with a little bit extra money. I don't have to pray, God, give me this day, my daily bread. So because I've got enough money to buy extra food and and I've got enough extra to do some things that I enjoy, some extra pleasures that I enjoy, he says, because I have more, I really should do more for other people, be generous in good deeds, and also be generous and willing to share. That's what he's saying. And I'm not going to feel guilty for what I have. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to feel grateful, but also realize that I'm responsible. And so loving other people like Jesus has loved me means that I do more and that I give more with the more that I have. Now, here's the thing. Before you resist and you argue that this doesn't apply to you, Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing this to first century Christ followers. He's writing this to a first century group of people. And I want you to stop and think about this. Compared to the first century, we're rich even by the standards of the first century royalty. How many of them had air conditioners? How many of them had cars? How many of them could fly around on airplanes? So imagine... What would the Apostle Paul say to us when we go, oh, we're not rich? He go, oh, yeah, you're you're richer than the royalty of the first century was. And then he reminds us what he reminded the first century folks who had a little bit of extra in verse 19. He says, in this way, when you do more and you give more, you will lay up treasures for, or you will lay up your treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So the apostle Paul says, hey, don't worry. Here's the thing. You don't need to worry 
But here's what will happen. If you'll do more and if you'll give more with the extra that you have, then he says, here's the deal. God is going to reward you for all of eternity and you'll live a better life here and now, a more fulfilling life while you're here. You'll be more satisfied. You won't be as selfish. In fact, I'll illustrate it this way. Again, looking at the cycle of accumulation. See, here's the thing. The cycle of accumulation, more, better, different, what it does is it tempts you to use all of your extra for you. The cycle of accumulation is all about you. However, if you want to live a life of significance, you need to take that extra and do something different. And if you take that extra and do something different, then you'll be living what is known as the cycle of significance. See, what will happen is you will find significance when you do more, when you give more, and when you love more. This is the cycle of significance. Give, serve, and love. You give more, you serve more, and you love more. See, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says that's when you take hold of the life that is truly life. So here's the thing. While we don't get this right all the time, this is the kind of movement that we have been trying to create and the kind of people, the kind of church that we've been trying to become for the last 20 years, a church that is living in this cycle of significance where we're like, man, we're just going to give more. We're going to serve more. We're going to love more. And I'm telling you, the only way to do that is to practice together for us together to say, listen, we're going to keep working on this. We are going to practice together giving and serving and loving. So, Next week is Give Week. And what we've done is we've identified some different opportunities and some nonprofit organizations that are making big impacts in all of our communities. And next week, we're going to ask you to give big to them in a way that's going to help these nonprofits continue to do what they're doing. Because one of the things that we say as a church all the time is we're not here to partner or we're not here to pioneer new things. We're here to partner with people who are already doing great things. So we've identified some of these different opportunities and nonprofits. And then we're going to give you next week the opportunity to give to them. And that's going to help them. In fact, I'll share you some of the details next week. But um, here's the thing. That money that when we do this special give um, next week, it's going to be all that money goes to these nonprofits. So come prepared to give and to give big for these nonprofits. And then in two weeks... We're going to challenge you to serve. And our goal is to help you find somewhere where you'll give a little bit of your time over the next few months where you can be rich in doing good deeds. That's what we want for you. So what we're going to do next or that week, that'll be the third week, is we're going to spotlight several nonprofits where they have serving opportunities and they'll even be on our campuses so that you can meet them, you can ask questions, and you can get involved. And then the final week is going to be the love week. And we've got some simple ideas for you how to, for how you can love the people in our communities during that week. Now, why are we doing this? Here's why. Because we are convinced of this, that the church is a movement for all people who are being changed by the resurrection of Jesus and driven by the command of Jesus. And that command is simple to understand. But here's what we know. It is very, <coughs> excuse me. It is very demanding to practice. And that's the kind of church that we want to be. A church that is driven by the command of Jesus to love others the way that he loved us. See, nobody wants to be a, a part of a church 
that is all about them. Nobody wants to be part of a church that is turned inward and is selfish. See, the minute it becomes all about us, I can promise you, you won't like this church anymore. So we want to be a church that gives and serves and loves, but you got to listen. This is so important. You are the church. So you're the ones that determine and you're the ones that are responsible to help make this happen because the church, as we said, it's not a meeting place. And the church isn't just for church people, whatever that statement means. The church is you and the church is me. It's us. We are the church. In fact, some years ago, um, I wrote this statement because I believe this so much. And it's such a great reminder that the church is all of us. The church is not a place. It's not a hired holy man. It's not a church staff. The church is all of us. So I wrote this statement some years ago to remind us of this. And we've kind of gotten away from this statement. So I'm just bringing it back in front of us. And, and it's this statement here. I am the church. Here's what I wrote out. What I am, the church is. When I serve, the church serves. When I reach out, the church reaches out. When I give, the church gives. When I love, the church loves. And when I don't, the church doesn't. I am the church. So, so if you... If you have ever heard someone going, well, that church just doesn't serve enough, you need to ask them, are you serving? Because the church is not going to serve any more than you serve. Or there's that, that's not a real loving church. Well, are you loving because you're the church? See, whatever you do, that's what our church is going to be. And I want you to ask yourself this question. The level that you are serving in our church and serving in our community, if you were the only person that was part of our CC, would we be considered a serving church? Because you're the church. You are RCC, all of you at all of our campuses. If, if you are the only one reaching out in our community to build relationships, to invest and invite, would we be a reaching church? If, if you were the only one giving to our church and in our community, would we be considered a generous church? If your love for others was the only love that was being displayed in our community, would we be considered a loving church? Because when you don't, the church doesn't because you're the church. And I've told people for years, listen, don't say our church doesn't if you're not doing it. Say, I'm not doing it, therefore our church is not doing it. See, it's so easy for us to say, all those people at our church, but you and I individually have to look in the mirror and say, listen, our church will never rise higher in any of these areas than what I'm doing. So um, let's say this together to remind us that the church is not Paul Smith and the church is not the staff of RCC. The church is every person who considers themselves to be part of RCC and a follower of Jesus and call this place home. So let's read this together. All of our campus, let's read it like we mean it, even though it's so convicting, it's painful at times, right? So together, I am the church. What I am, the church is. When I serve, the church serves. When I reach out, the church reaches out. When I give, the church gives. When I love, the church loves. And when I don't,
the church doesn't because I am the church. Okay, I didn't hear loud enough from Chipley and Blountstown and Mariana. We got to do this one more time because we have to be convinced that this is truth because this is what we have to own. So all of our campus, again, let, let's, Philip, Dustin, help me out. Bring your churches up, man, to the level. We got to say this together, right? I am the church. What I am, the church is. When I serve, the church serves. When I reach out, the church reaches out. When I give, the church gives. When I love, the church loves. Everybody get ready for the last two lines because this is big. Here we go. Everybody take a deep breath and let's really say it. And when I don't, the church doesn't. I am the church. Yeah, somebody got it. There we go. Yeah, that's right. So here's the thing. This church will only rise to the level that you rise in each one of these areas. And let me just say one other thing before we continue on in saying we need to be for our communities. Because part of being for is that we're for each other as a church. And I just want to say something. And I've never had to say this before in the 28 years or 27 years I've been pastoring this church. But on our Bluntstown campus, our Chipley campus, and our Mariana campus, our leaders have said, we are close to closing down our, church, our, our children's ministry on Sunday morning, every Sunday morning pretty much, because people are no longer stepping up to serve in our children. For example, on our Mariana campus, other, other Sunday, between a Friday and a Saturday, we had 28 people decline and say, oh, we're just not going to make it. Something came up. 28 people. We went way over what was safe on that Sunday between the adult-children ratio. I understand what has happened through this hurricane and this pandemic. We have been for our communities. We've been doing a lot of things. But one of the things we all tend to do is we start turning inward. And we forget that what I am, the church is. Here's the thing. We, we have a lot of practice to do in this season. A lot of practice of getting better, of being the church that we have built on the foundation of, of a church that gives and serves and loves and reaches out. But I want to tell you, if we work on this and we practice this together in this season, this is why I feel like it's so important. Man, we can have an impact as a church. We can have an impact on the next generation. We can have an impact on our communities like the first century followers of Jesus Christ had because they turned their world upside down because they served and they reached out and they gave and they loved at a level that it overrode everything. And all of a sudden, what was a really pagan nation just fell and Christianity was sweeping, making huge impacts. See, for too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for who and what we're for. And so just telling people that they're welcome to come to our church, that's good. But let me tell you, four is better. We are four because Jesus was four. We are four because the apostle Paul told us, hey, this is what it looks like to love like Jesus. That, that's why we say that we are four. And that's why we're practicing in this season being four. For some of you, it's going to be that you're going to give and you're going to serve and you're going to love to our communities. But for some of you, the Holy Spirit's going to say, okay, it's time for you to pick up the towel and start serving the people in the church again, the body of Christ again. Now, I just want you to know, if this is your first Sunday here, 
Man, this is a great Sunday for you to be here because you kind of see the heart and the soul of this church. And we want you to know that we are for you. Listen, before we know who you are, what you've done, any of those things, listen, we are for you because Jesus is for you and God is for you. In fact, those of you who call RCC, I mean, your church home, and like you're one of our campuses this morning, we're reminding you that as Christ followers, we are called to be for the people in our church. We are called to be for the people in our community. And see, here's the thing. We all live, work, and play in our communities, so we have to be for everybody in our communities. That's the bottom line. Why wouldn't we be for them? In fact, as we read in John chapter 13, 35, he just says, listen, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And you know what Jesus is telling us? Is that evangelism, it moves at the speed of love. See, we will never reach more people for Jesus than our level of love as a church. So being for is really putting love into action the way that Jesus loved us. So here's my challenge to you this morning. Let's practice giving, let's practice serving, and let's practice loving in such a way that there is no question to the people that we go to church with, to the people in our communities, that we follow Jesus, that there's no doubt about who we love. We love every person because every person that we lock eyes with is somebody that Jesus died for and Jesus valued enough to die for them on the cross. See, I really feel like that God is calling us as a church to say, hey, it's time. It's time for us to refocus on being for, on being for the people in our church. Many of us need to step back up or step up and start serving and start giving and start loving in the church. And then all of us, we need to step up and make sure that we're giving and loving and serving in our communities. And over the next three weeks, we're gonna give you ways to do that for our community. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this incredible opportunity. God, I thank you for the heart and the soul of this church. God, the heart and soul has been to be for, it's been to serve, it's been to give, it's been to love, it's been to reach out. And it's carried us through this very difficult season, these last three years. And God, we, we're just being honest before you right now. We've, we've gone through a lot of trauma and a lot of pain. And God, whenever we go through that, it's really easy to get focused on ourselves. But God, we understand that healing, healing for our soul and wholeness Laying up a life that is truly life or grasping a hold of life that is truly life is when we follow Jesus' model and we don't consider ourselves more important than others. And we don't just look out for our own interests, but we look out for the interest of others. And that's what you called us to as a follower of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you help us to love and serve and give and invest and invite in our communities in such a way that nobody in our church family and nobody in our communities will even question who we love and who we follow. Jesus, as we fall more in love with you, help us to display that in the way that we love each other. 
and we love our communities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you so much. We will see you next Sunday.